Namo tasa bhagavato harahato sama sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato sama sambodasa Namo tasa bhagavato harahato sama sambodasa Homage to the Buddha, the Blessed Noble, and fully self-enlightened one. Um, <clears throat> I never know what I'm going to say, so I just <laughs> just hope something comes out. Any moment, any moment now, something will arise. <laughs> Um, <clears throat> one thing we've been uh, recognizing, especially those of you who are new, is this inner world, you know, the interior life as it's called in, in some spiritual traditions. And um, there are teachings around this which we chant, well I chant, nobody else is joining in, but i uh, in the morning, the dependence origination. And it also links in with uh, the Buddha's understanding of karma. So this um, karma, dependence origination, um, and his view, which was really regular, uh, which was ordinary for those times. And in fact, it's only in very recent times in the West that we've made this, um, or we've manufactured this understanding that the world is somehow objective to us, that, that we can be completely objective about the world, uh, that <coughs> we can study the world and see it as an object rather than it being something that we are subjectively personally experiencing now the fact is that that's brought us science and it's brought us technology but um, it's also brought the delusion that we live that we can be objective uh, in the world whereas in fact everything we experience is completely subjective so <coughs> we need to understand this because in the Buddhist time you wouldn't separate the world from consciousness uh, in the scriptures you get you get questions like is the world eternal or is it uh, finite and so on and he would never answer those questions simply because if he'd have said the world was eternal there's a presumption that consciousness is that the self is okay uh, and he never goes that far you see uh, he would have been accused of being an eternalist um, an eternal soul or self on the other hand, his denial was taken as a, as, a, as, a, as a point of annihilation, that in fact he was denying that there was a self or anything, or anything which was, um, or anything that, that uh, was, uh, or, uh, what he was saying was that everything would be annihilated. So he would be, he would be accused of being an annihilationist because of his way of describing uh, Nibbana uh, mainly by what it wasn't. So... We need to uh, just see the world through the Buddha's eyes, or at least 
through my eyes and the way they see the Buddha's <laughs> the Buddha's teaching. So uh, you have to check up on it after you've listened to this talk. <laughs> um, <clears throat> we have, uh, for want of a better word, we have this consciousness. And um, the consciousness that we have is, is sometimes referred to as a discriminative consciousness. So this is the consciousness that can tell the difference between this and that, can understand why things, why things are. So let's take a very simple example of, of what happens according to the Buddhist psychology. Uh, in the morning you hear the bell, okay? So there you are, you're in a state of unconsciousness. I mean, there, there must be some residue of awareness because something hears the bell. But <clears throat> we'll take for granted that moment that we are not conscious in that obvious way. So all that's happening, which we know from our science, is that waves, air waves, are just hitting the eardrum. Now, that means that at the eardrum, all there is is pressure waves. So that is your in terms of uh, Buddhist psychology, that's your element of the earth, that's your pressure. Every time you put your foot down onto the ground, you feel the pressure of it, the weight of it. Hmm? That's the earth element. That's all, uh, that's all the Buddha's talking about. And this earth element, as it touches the eardrum, uh, this can be experienced, by the way, but you, you've got to spend a bit more than a weekend, that's all. And <laughs> it's taken in through a process of perception and what the perception perceives is simply a sound and then that perception as it were is discriminated by a higher intelligence which we call uh, consciousness which uh, for those of you who know I'm talking about sanya perception and vijnana consciousness and that consciousness gives it a label gives it a name it's a bell the sanya then moves up to hold the concept of bell and then the discriminative fu function can then recognize that this is an alarm bell, a, a wake-up bell. And then it moves up one step further and then it recognizes that it is actually time to get up. Right? So you go through these various stages where the perception lifts every time the discriminative faculty recognizes what's happening. Then at some point, sorry, at that point when it's recognized, now this is what it is. The eye pops up. I have to get up. <laughs> the eye arises right at the end of the process, which is not what we say in our language. Huh? In our language, the eye comes first. So we say things like, I hear the bell, or I want ice cream. It's always the eye. We start off with I. But actually, psychologically speaking, the eye turns up at the end of the process. Once that eye has turned up, right, then there's a, a further process of what does this mean I have to do, okay? Then you get that process of, uh, of, 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 of a reaction to the bell, right? So I have to get up. Then the, the desire to come up, to, the desire to get up arises. And at that point, there's an empowerment of that. So here's a very... Uh, important distinction between the intention that arises and the power that goes into that intention to manifest it. So 
something must bring uh, something out of potential into an actual. So when you're walking meditation, you see, you can stand there and you can say, intending to walk. Intending to walk, see? And you can feel the intention to walk. Nothing happens. Yeah? You can try this <laughs> after this sitting. You're standing there saying, intending to walk, and you're building up this real, it's like a force within you, but, in, but nothing happens. Huh? And suddenly the foot moves. Okay? The movement or the, the, um, the bringing of that potential into an actual, by the lifting of the foot, right? That takes some power. It takes some, some impulsion of power. And this is what the Buddha refers to as will. Now, you cannot separate that power from the action. Okay? It's like in science, so I believe, please correct me, when you throw a stone into the air, you can't separate the force from the stone. Yeah? But the force is somehow part of the stone, but it's not part of the stone, because when the stone lands, there's no force in it. But you can't separate them. So this lifting of the foot, right, is an action empowered by the will, and you can't separate the power from the action, and that's what we call an act. Okay, that's what we call an action. An act in the Buddha's terminology is a karma. Right now, normally speaking, in our language, we refer to karma as something that's hitting you from the past. You know, like you fall over and you say, "Well, that's my karma." You know, <laughs> a bus hit you and say, "Well, that's my karma." But that's not actually the meaning of karma in uh, in the Buddha's teaching. <coughs> karma is a word which refers simply to an action. Okay. Now, this action if it's repeated, creates a conditioning. Okay, creates a conditioning. And when we have all these conditionings, when we have all these habits, when we have a congregation of habits, that's all the personality is. Now within all that, we still get this very strong sense of I. Yeah? Very strong sense of I am I am the one who, I am the doer, I am the actor, I am the one who's in control. Now what we notice in our meditation is that actually uh, nobody is in control of the body. The body does what it wants to do. Eh? So when you're sitting there and the knee decides that it's uncomfortable, it decides to give you pain. You don't decide. <laughs> and then you begin to I recognize that, well, whatever this I is, it's not in control of the body. Not in any absolute sense. Of course we can wave our arms about and, and cross the road and, and do this and that. But with the really important things, uh, there seems to be a lack of control. Now, in the Buddha's time, and even for us, if we talk about a self or a soul, hmm, something permanent, something whole, entire, what we presume is that it has power over itself. If it doesn't have power over itself, then there's power coming from some other place. So that other place must be not just a centre of power, but in terms of a self, not me, not mine. Huh? If, if, I, if, if, my, if my knee is truly me, I should say, uh, you'll bend this way and you won't give me any pain. Thank you very much. <laughs> but because I can't do that, because I don't have that power, the knee is telling me that it's not me. 
Now, if we take a look at any of the sensations in the body, they're arising because of uh, the body itself, its contact with the world. Eh? If I put food on my tongue, I can't tell my tongue not to taste the food. It's impossible. It just doesn't happen. I can anesthetize myself, and put, <laughs> but that's not really what we're on about. We recognize that the tongue is not under my control. When I look into the body and I think, well, you know, this is my body, and I really ask myself, what do I know about it? Uh, not what I've learnt from books, what do I actually experience in my body? I come across some amazing things, like for instance, uh, as far as I know, the marrow of my bones is at the moment making red blood corpuscles. Now, I haven't told it to do that. It's very cheeky. And it, <laughs> and it continues to do it, it's regulating it and all this stuff is coming out from the marrow of my bones and I haven't, a, I haven't a clue that that's happening. And I am absolutely, totally, existentially dependent on red corpuscles. <laughs> Have you any clue now what your liver's doing? See? So when you, <laughs> if you look into your body, you come across this awful business of actually, I haven't a clue what's going on in here. And you get this feeling of being an alien inside your own body. This consciousness, this awareness, which actually is not in control. This can be shocking for somebody. <laughs> and that, of course, brings us to these three, the three great awakeners, sickness, old age and death. This is when we come across this, uh, you know, the existential, the real existential fright, the fear, the fear of dying. And that's where we come across this this I, this, this feeling of a self. And that's when it really begins to realize that actually it's not in control of this body at all. Now, <clears throat> there's something which, uh, which begins to undermine this reality of an I because the I identifies itself with what it experiences. So if I, if I have all this time thought that I am my body and I realize I haven't, I haven't been my body in any absolute sense, then uh, this I, in that sense, doesn't actually exist. It's been a fabrication of my mind, a concept that I've built up in, in, in my mind and brain which I actually have believed in as true. This can be quite shocking. When I look at my emotional life, here I am sitting and uh, I want to be peaceful but the heart refuses to obey me. Huh? Suddenly I find myself being very depressed or very anxious, very excited, dull and then every so often I get this beautiful spaced out peaceful feeling and then I think right uh, that's it finally I've got it you see and then it disappears. I don't seem to have any control over it at all. So now I've, I, as I look deeply into my emotional experience of life, into, into my heart life, um, I find I have very little control over it. I mean, I can do certain things, like to make myself happy, I can buy some ice cream. Yeah? I doesn't, I'm not talking personally here, I don't like ice cream. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I can do things like watch TV, I can divert myself, I can... I can do something, but, but in a sense, uh, that's, a, that's a way of, 
I, I'm, I'm controlling my heart but in a sense it's not what the heart wants to do because when I, when I stop all that tr escapism and I allow the heart to manifest it comes up often or most of the times with stuff that I don't particularly like so I, I come again with the body the body I can move around I can take it from here to there I can make it walk but when it comes to the essential things I find that I really don't have that control and I find the same with my heart life you see so now uh, I thought I was in control you see but I'm not in control of my heart life so this is a big problem for the eye well who the hell am I if I <laughs> if I can't control my own heart if I can't just say well I'm going to be happy now and be happy or I'm sad so I'm going to forget that and, do, and, and, and just control the heart then I can't be my emotional life so this I now is, in, uh, is getting, is getting uh, a little bit worried about who the heck it is yeah? then I notice my thoughts um, imaginations images come to my mind so I sit here peacefully and I think, right, well I'm going to concentrate now on the breath. And the mind has other intentions. It goes all over the place. As you know, it goes to Acapulco and places like that. And I wake up and I think, well, hold on, I never told you to do that, see? And it's through these little experiences that I realise, actually, I, I'm not in control of my mind as I thought I was. I can make it do something. I can turn my attention to something but uh, generally speaking it's doing something to me and so again the eye is thrown <coughs> into a sort of um, a wonder well I, I don't seem to be my thoughts either and then, it, and then it, it sort of turns and then you turn and you think well let me look at this a bit more closely now so then you notice that uh, when you look at the body there is some sort of separation between that which knows and that and the body it knows that which feels and the body it feels there's a sort of distance a separation for instance um, you're looking at me now or most of you are and uh, I am uh, I, I make no excuses filling your consciousness at the moment <laughs> can you become aware instead of that of the distance that's between us become aware of the separation yeah? Now, when we do that within ourselves, and we notice that there's a, a gap, a sort of space, a mental space, you might say, between that which knows, that which feels, that which experiences, and what it's experiencing, uh, this is also telling us that wherever the eye is, it can't, be, it can't be an object. The eye has to be a subject. The eye is me, but I'm looking at something. If I'm looking at something, it can't be me. Huh? In our uh, early childhood, it's true, isn't it? That up to about, so they tell us, you know, up to about the age of three, four months, we just live in this bath of sens sensation where there is no object as such. And out of that looms our first object, you know, uh, mother. Yeah? So that being sort of coagulates, sort of moves out of this mass of sensations and becomes something other. And then over a period of time, we've separated ourselves from the world out there. Yeah? So that we're quite clear, this is me, and that's the world. 
yeah? Maybe, I don't know, by the age of two or three or something. Now, this process of observing the body within ourselves, of observing sensations within ourselves, uh, and then of observing a, our emotional life within ourselves as objects to be perceived, to be felt, but still as an object. And then I see an image in my mind. And if, if, I, if I, my concentration is very good, I'll see a thought arising and passing away. Sometimes like a neon light passing in front of you. Yeah? And all these things are objects. So all we're, what we're doing is we are um, taking that process inward. As a, as a baby, we began to separate the outer world from this me and through meditation I'm separating the inner world from this me but the peculiar thing is that even when that's separated even when I see <coughs> that there there's the sensations there's the body there's an emotion there's depression there's happiness there's a thought there's he there. that's, that's one of the benefits of this noting technique because it makes that very obvious to you uh, there's still this peculiar sense of I. There's still me doing the observing, me doing the feeling. Huh? Strange, isn't it? And then you might, in, in a very quiet moment of meditation, just sit back there, when everything's peaceful and quiet, begin to realise that there is this feeling of a self-awareness, awareness of a self. Now, what we've been saying is that if it's an object of consciousness, then it can't be the knowing itself. Eh? If, I, if, I, if I experience something as out there, as an object, then it can't be the subject. Are you with me on that? You're all shaking your head. Thank you very much. So, <laughs> as soon as I become aware of this self, this self-consciousness, I can't be that either. It's also an object. Eh? And I, I'm slowly beginning to realise that this whole idea of who I am, what I am, is being uh, manufactured, is being constantly constructed. But more than that, it's being reconstructed every moment. So this sense of, really strong sense of identity of me, of, of this is me, this is mine, is actually in a continual state of change. So it itself, this idea of a self, is like the body, the body's constantly changing. As we know, every seven years, so they tell us, eh? every atom in the body has been exchanged. See? So when next, uh, this evening or tomorrow, when you look in the mirror, just, just say to that face, you, you weren't here seven years ago. See? <laughs> it's a completely, completely different set of atoms, it seems, uh, that, that this body's made up of. But we haven't, we haven't acknowledged that change. We haven't actually felt it or experienced it. And all the time, from the time we were born up to this present moment, this sense of I, <coughs> which seems so solid, so permanent, so, so strong within us, is also in a constant state of change. Huh? And it defines itself differently by what it experiences. So you'll get, you get people saying things like, if I did that, it wouldn't be me. <coughs> yeah, that's, that's a fantastic thing. If I did that, it wouldn't be me. <laughs> See? So they've got this definition of who I am. And the definition of who I am ranges from 
you know, our character, you know, I'm a strong person or a weak person, our jobs, you know, I'm a nurse, I'm a mechanic, whatever it is, uh, to my status in society, to who I am in relationship to others, I'm a father, a son, and so on and so forth. This I is always dependent on some sort of relationship. Now, here we are in a meditation, constantly pulling off, pulling off everything that we know to be me, that before we would have said, well, this is me. Yeah? And that process is the process of non-attachment. Right? Now, uh, detachment suggests a sort of coldness to it, but it's a non-attachment. We don't deny the, uh, the reality of the world. See, that's another thing. Even though we are um, manufacturing our own world within our minds, that's not a denial of the world as it exists out there, but it's a denial that we can know the world out there as an object. So, for instance, we're all in this room. Nobody would deny the existence of this room. If we all went away and walked up the road, this room would not disappear. <laughs> it, would, it would remain here. But... Each of us are actually are in our own room. Huh? We have a different perspective of it, we have a, a different feel about it, we have a different experience of it, and so on and so forth. So there are as many rooms here in actual experience as there are people. Huh? So when we look into this world, when we look into this world, when the Buddha says, in this world there is Dukkha and the end of Dukkha, in this world, He's talking about this consciousness, this awareness that we have. Hmm? And then he says, within this fathom-length body is the world. In this fathom-length body is Dukkha, which, remember, is our wrong relationship to the world, and no Dukkha, which is the end of that wrong relationship to the world. And that's what he refers to, when he's, well, that's what he's really referring to when he talks about karma, right? So, when I, when I talk about karma, when I talk about my conditioning, when I talk about um, this, this word dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, it's all being manufactured within me. And it's all being manufactured from this centre that I call I. And what the I is doing is identifying with the world. So it thinks that it is this human being. This is a big mistake. Because having made this decision, it has to seek happiness within the world. That's how we get locked into the pleasure syndrome. So we've been doing you know, quite a bit of work around that, around eating and whatnot, just to see the distinction between being in the world in a non-attached way and being in the world in an attached way. This attachment is coming from some wrong understanding. That wrong understanding is what the Buddha talks about as the delusion, the delusion of who I am. And this I is constantly self-referring to itself as being this body, this mind, and what this body and mind does within the world. And that's where it begins to own things. That's where you begin to have the, uh, the, the slippage of love towards attachment. Yeah? So, <clears throat> when, for instance, uh, I meet somebody and I say, well, I know you, I mean, what does that actually mean? See? 
it's hard to say that I know myself. But when I say I know you and I have a relationship with you, uh, what does that actually mean? It just means that within me I've built up an image of you which I have a relationship with. Doesn't it? It's the image within me that I have a relationship with. It's not, it, 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 it is being reinforced by your actions, but within me I'm constantly building up an image. For instance, uh, when somebody dies, um, if somebody close to you has died, have you, not, have you not seen that there is this image of that person? It's like a ghost within the mind. Huh? That no longer can be vivified. It can no longer find somebody. It can't be reinforced by a continual connection with somebody out there. So it rests in the heart as this shade, this sort of ghost that sort of wanders around the heart and it has some reality still within the psyche but it can't be reinforced eh? Not, so that's, that's what we're doing all the time we have this image of the other person we have a relationship that we've built up but it's actually within our own minds and when I meet you I plonk this image on you you see and so long as you're behaving according to my image of you no, there's no problem. But if you do something that that's doesn't fit into the image, then I have to go through a readjustment, right? And that readjustment can be painful or pleasurable. It doesn't really matter. But that connection, you see, that connection gives us the impression that we actually know the person. It's the same with food, you see. When you put sugar on your tongue, you think you're tasting that sugar but actually you can only taste what your tongue will taste so if if the taste buds on your tongue don't really receive the fullness of that sugar you'll never know that sugar as as that sugar is yeah so what we'll end what we end up with what we're ending up with is an image of the world concocted by my own senses by my own understandings yeah? and Within this world, I, I'm trying to juggle the whole process to make myself happy. I'm trying to, to juggle things, to move things about, to, uh, to remove things perhaps, <laughs> which uh, are not making the world as I perceive it, as I experience it, something which is pleasurable for me. Yeah? And that would work if I was in total control, you see? If I could, you know, if I, if I could make you do exactly what I wanted you to do, then that would be, I'd be in heaven, wouldn't I? <laughs> but I find that the world doesn't actually measure up to my inner wishes. So there's this constant sort of conflict with the world as it is out there, which I can never know, the world in here, which I've concocted, and my desire to turn this world which is, which is just simply within my consciousness into a pleasure dome, into somewhere I can be happy. Yeah? And so I'm, I'm in this constant uh, conflict with the way things are. Now here in meditation, what we're learning, we're learning to step out of all that, that game playing. We're learning to actually find a different position to the world that we continue to create. Yeah? 
And in stepping out, we're beginning to see the certain forces, the certain mechanisms that we're using, which are actually creating the unhappiness. And the Buddha says, if we can undo these, if we can go back on that process, the world completely changes. He says things like, the world argues with me, I don't argue with the world. <laughs> in other words, the world feels itself in conflict with me, but I'm not in conflict with the world. So now, uh, how, how is this done? So that's what we've been really practicing. That's what we've been trying to discern very clearly as to how we create this world, how we make a mess of it, how we can undo the mess and bring about this perfect peace and happiness that we all want. So we notice, for instance, that there are two, uh, two uh, misinterpretations or misconceptions um, wrong way, a wrong way of looking at something. So the first one is something which nobody would, would argue with, that everything is in a process of change. But somehow, even though we say it, even though we see it, it doesn't actually strike because if it really hit home, we would, we'd stop holding on to anything. We'd stop being upset by the fact that things change. We'd stop expecting things. Huh? We'd stop trying to uh, presume that something's going to happen just because I wish it or because I've done something. Hmm? And we would be much more centered in the present moment to see the present moment more in its fullness and to be aware of, of the process of evolution, the process of change, and to find a way of being in harmony with it. Hmm? So that's what we practiced when we were in that state of um, you know, this abiding in the present moment. Abiding in the present moment means just complete acceptance of the way things are. Right? And remember, that's not a resignation where you say, well, I can't do anything about it. Not at all. It's a very active, uh, well, it's a very passive state, but it's a very open state where you're receiving exactly what that is. And it may not be that pleasant. Huh? It may be very upsetting. It may be all sorts of things. And in receiving that in its fullness, then you get you get the change. The change is coming from the outside and the change is coming from the inside in your perception of things. And because your perception, your understanding is based on a reality, on a real assessment of the situation, not how you would want it to be or how it must be or it should be, but how it actually is, then we remain much more in harmony with the way things are and we can work with it in a more uh, creative way. So that's the importance of seeing this anicca, this, this impermanence of things. It draws, us very, it draws us down into the present moment. The second thing is to recognize this business of not self, not me, not mine. So that means no control and, and, and letting go of control is to us a very fearful thing because we enter into a state of not knowing. We don't like to be in a place where we don't know. We like to be in a place of, well, I know what's going to happen and I know how to do it and, and that makes us feel safe. Huh? But that sense of control is corruptive. Huh? It corrupts others, it corrupts ourselves. Power corrupts and, as you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So when, when it's not that we are disempowering ourselves, it's just that we don't want to come from a position of me. How do we go beyond the me, you see? We go beyond the me by putting ourselves into the position of the other. 
there's a lovely uh, discourse in in the scriptures where uh, there are three uh, arahats living together. An arahat is, is somebody who's fully self-enlightened, so you know it's a special occasion. And there's three of them living together, and the Buddha says, "How is it you live so peacefully? You know, how do you come to live so peacefully?" And uh, Anuruddha he answers, he says, "Well, uh, Lord, when um, we are, I say to myself." What if I put aside what I want to do and do what the others want to do? See? Now that absolutely works perfectly well as long as everybody else does the same. <laughs> if you say it and somebody else doesn't do it, then you get abused, right? <laughs> but <clears throat> there's your movement away from what I want to do, a, wor a, a world centered just on my personal desires or where I want to go, just putting that aside and saying what what do the others want to do and if everybody does that then you get this this harmony because everybody's trying to do what you want to do you don't lose out by that if anything uh, everybody will try to support what you want to do just as you're trying to support everybody else in what they want to do uh, let's just hope it doesn't lead to confusion but the thing is that it's a shift of your center see uh, what the self does, what the I does, it's always centering in on itself. You've only got to listen to your interior dialogue. Eh? It's always about me, you know, and how could you do this to me? And if I was here, you were there. No? <laughs> and so it's shifting the center from the I to the other, but not forgetting the I. You see, you're not, that's not the sort of absolute altruism where you're only there for the other person. Not at all. You're there in harmony but to do that you need to shift your awareness into the other person's into the other person's place just that is an act of generosity see just that is an act of generosity so here we have this process of impermanence we're observing change which draws us deeper and deeper into the present moment because that's the only moment we can really know here we have the process of not me not mine, a displacement of our centre into some other, or at least in between, uh, not always centering upon me. And then finally, we have this whole process of desire. And what we've noticed is that some desires are very wholesome, and we want to develop them, and some desires are, are incredibly unwholesome, and we don't want to develop them. And this is really where the work is, because to change ourselves at that attitudinal level and the habitual level of action is really uh, you know, where, where, the, where so much of our work is spiritually. So for instance, if somebody has um, an eating problem or, or any problem, any, any addiction, watching too much TV, too much Twitter, you know, like, like you find yourself just spending hours and hours just drawn to one particular activity, and you find that it's, it has both this dual element. Remember that when we experience something as pleasurable, the pleasure itself is drawing us towards that object. We want the happiness that that pleasure gives. But remember, for the most part, we're also escaping something that we don't want. Hmm? So that's why, for the most part, when we come to sit in meditation for a day, what we get is all the horrible stuff. Because <laughs> that's the stuff we've not been looking at. Yeah? The, the happy stuff we've no problem with. You can sit with it all day, for heaven's sake, <laughs> and go on holiday. But because we don't do that, as soon as we sit in meditation, more often than not, we get, we get all the rubbish. 
like you take a <coughs> lid off a dustbin. So <coughs> knowing, knowing this, uh, knowing or, or discerning, you see, discerning which of these intentions are actually going to bring unhappiness, uh, it's that clear acknowledgement. So when we note something, planning, planning, you know, angry, angry, see, it's the acknowledgement of it which is the first step. You see, and there are many things in us which are difficult to acknowledge. We don't like to look in ourselves and, and see ourselves as we truly are. Uh, jealousy, for instance, nobody, nobody likes to say they're jealous. As soon as you say you're jealous, it means you're inferior. <laughs> you know, so envy, jealousy. So nobody, you know, but if you catch it, you see, and you say jealous, then you get this other stuff about shame and denial and all that sort of stuff. And you've got to be with that whole psychology. Huh? So the first part is this clear acknowledgement of you know this this is this is the way I am or not not so this is the way I am this is jealousy that's full stop having acknowledged having clearly acknowledged a uh, uh, something a habit that we have then we have to as it were uh, go into the process of letting it go and this is where faith comes in this is where our trust in the system of vipassana the buddha's teaching uh, you need to have that and what the Buddha is saying is simply if you don't if you don't empower this if you don't join in if you don't follow that intention and you let the desire pass away that's all that has to be done right you don't have to do anything more than not engage that's all and that's what you're doing when you're sitting all this stuff comes up the anger the depression the anxiety and you're just letting it be. You're not engaging. No matter how much the desire is saying, do this, do that, fall asleep, go here, go there, you just sit still and you're just feeling that energy, right? No matter how it expresses itself, and that's all you have to do, right? So the power, the power of disempowerment is in non-doing, is in non-reaction, is in allowing the heart to express its diseases, its diseases, and that's the process of therapy. And you have to have faith in that. Yeah? You have to have a certain faith. And that faith comes not just out of reading books or anything, but through your practice. Over a period of time, if you take this into your daily life, not just when you're sitting, but every time you see a very strong desire which has a power over you, you find some sort of mechanism, some sort of way of pulling yourself out and putting yourself in a different situation. If something like, for instance, if you're always watching TV at night, well, go out for a walk or something. You know, if you always find yourself eating, see, don't buy so much food, you know. <laughs> Just make sure the cupboards are empty, you know. <laughs> and then scream. So, it's like, you know, to make, to make it difficult for ourselves to empower these wrong uh, habitual uh, things. And then there's the practice. Then there's that constantly being aware that mindfulness of when that desire arises if we catch a desire at the beginning it doesn't have much power but if we catch it when it's already caught the mind it's already gathered a lot of power and it's very difficult to stop it so that's what we we need to take back into daily life is this very bright awareness and to and to keep it there you see so that you're aware not only of what's happening outside you but what's happening inside you and that's that very uh, relaxed you see it's relaxed awareness a relaxed global awareness but it's awake it's alive hmm? and to oppose that anytime you see a habit which is 
um, oh sorry uh, and the last thing to say about that is it's complete resolve you just can't give up on it right? as soon as you give up uh, working with an old habit it immediately gathers pace um, often people who give up something like smoking yeah, they, uh, they give it up they may be out of smoking for years and years and years and then you know they think they that's it you know there's, there's no there's no desire to smoke anymore and then they have just that one cigarette before you know it they're, they're off and they've kick-started the whole system see because that kernel of desire that kernel of dependency of addiction call it what you wish is still there within the system even if it's at a very low level yeah? and it's only a deep spiritual insight that cleanses that level mm? and these are what we call the paths and fruits you see we won't go into that this evening I think <laughs> but what we really have to recognize is that you can't you have to be awake once you've reduced the habit down to something which is no longer bothering you that's not the end of the habit there always has to be that just that awakeness for it to come back in and to know you know when it when it begins to manifest normally speaking under under times of stress that's when our bad habits come yeah when we're stressed out when we we're doing too much when somebody's putting stress on us we tend to seek the old the old escape and as opposed to that on the other side of that of course is building up the beautiful heart and that's where uh, we develop good intentions through the meta practice but also through our daily activities and again we come back to this whole primary starting point of our intention so work for instance um, often when we start a job we have uh, that initial interest that initial um, desire to really do our best and then after uh, a few you know a year months a few minutes sometimes <laughs> you realize this is absolutely boring it's horrible and all sort of stuff and somehow you have to undermine that and keep putting in the right intention for the work you're doing so just look at your livelihood and give it some really wonderful beautiful intention a t an intention always always out of a sense of service doesn't matter what it is so long as it's not immoral yeah and if whatever job you're doing if you see it in the light of service then it immediately turns it into an act of compassion an act of of giving an act of dana and dana uh, giving is uh, something the buddha always used to start his talks on when he talked to lay people for the first time or to anybody he would always start with this quality of dana and dana means generosity and he would point out that even a thief can be generous yeah he might be generous with your goods but at least <laughs> at least he can be generous and that generosity is uh, must have within it if if it's a pure generosity not given for some return not a social not a sort of social contract i'll do this for you if you do this for me but if it's really done out of just a pure giving whether it's of wealth or of time there's always there included in that act an act of renunciation because you could have used that money for you you could have used the time on you yeah? so every time we're being generous in that very open-hearted non-expecting uh, way there's always an act of renunciation and what's being renounced the desires of the self so we find that through the act of generosity, through acts of, of generous compassion, compassionate generosity, is actually a path to liberation in itself. It's the path of the heart. So, um, 
we've been around the houses, haven't we? Yeah, I'm going back. <laughs> I've been sort of everywhere. I wonder what I've been talking about now. <laughs> so if if we were, uh, if I was trying to pull all that together, it'd be impossible. So I just <laughs> so all, all I say that I hope my words have been of some assistance, and that you will struggle on to find your true liberation, which is expressed through the purity of heart and compassionate action and to live in eternal peace sooner rather than later. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.